We are continuing our sermon series, the book of Daniel, an ordinary rebel's guide to revolutionary living. And, uh, and here's why we're doing this sermon series, okay? We're doing this sermon series, and I just read again another, another study by Barna. Um, did you know that ages 15 to 30, people in that age group in this country, that they're the least churched and the most anti-Christian, anti-church generation ever? Did you guys know that? Do you know that less than 2% of people in your age group come to church? And you know what's even more startling is statistics show us that people who are in church are not only leaving church, your people in your age group, but they're also becoming more disillusioned with Christianity. And here's the other thing. People that studied this thought that people that had this sort of negative attitude towards Christianity was because they're not deep thinkers, they're just, you know, emotional and one bad experience. No, what they're finding out is when they talk to people, they're very thoughtful, very articulate, can, can point to specific things and issues that they experience that's cheering them off from Christianity. Christianity is known as being uh, anti, anti, uh, Christian is known as uh, as a religion in this country, apparently, in this observation, of being people who hate homosexuals. Christianity is perceived as a religion that's about a certain political agenda. Christianity is looked upon as a self-centered, me, prosperity, health, and wealth gospel that's irrelevant to large parts of society. Christianity is looked upon as something that completely doesn't resemble Jesus anymore. And there are a number of things. And, and, and the reason why I talk about all this is because the reason why we're doing this sermon series is because the reason why there's a perception like that out there is because we Christians don't know how to live in our society. We don't know how to interact with our culture in a way that makes sense, in a way that's in, influential, in a way that it's winsome. We Christians have, have just complete. I'm sorry, for those of you that like get this and know it, bravo, great for you. But for apparently like 98% of people in this country, your age group, say, I don't want it anything to do with church because Christians don't know how to interact with the society and culture around them. So what do we do? We either assimilate and become just like everybody else or we separate and we withdraw. And that's what we've been talking about. Now, you know, it's just uh, uh, the, the confirmation for the sermon series is coming throughout the sermon series. Here are the conversations I just had last Sunday after Sunday. A woman comes up to me and says, I grew up in the church, a very legalistic church, and I just kind of, at, at some point in my 20s, decided, I don't want that, to, that's irrelevant for me. It doesn't really answer some tough questions I have. And so she right now finds herself in a very tight-knit community with a lot of gay folks. She says most of her friends are gay. And she says, I want to be a Christian. I want to be distinct. I want to follow Christ. And yet, Peter, it's hard. It's hard. Talked to another woman who came up to me and said, my parents told me that it was a sin growing up, sin to have non-Christian friends. Those were words. Sin to have non-Christian friends. Some of you guys heard the same thing. Come on, right? And so here she is as a young adult going, my, and this was a tragic thing of them all. She said that her parents will not talk to her. Her family avoids her during family sort of times because she's hanging around with them. And so she's at this point going, I, what do I do? She thinks her choice is I choose family or I choose my friends. Talk to a guy who was a pastor's kid, grew up in the church. And, and this is what some of us do. In order to sort of go away from what they grew up with, he only has non-Christian friends now. He only will hang around with non-Christians, you know? 
And yet reality's sinking in and he's realizing, man, it's harder than I thought. He wants to be distinct for Christ and yet at the same time he's asking that question of how do I do? And then of course, you guys, talked to a number of people who said, I know for a fact that I've, I've assimilated. I know for a fact that I'm no different from a culture and it's really just killing my heart and soul and yet I don't know what to do because I certainly don't want to go back to a life where I was just withdrawn and separated from the culture and society at large. Can anybody relate? It's just, these are the questions that we need to be asking. What does it mean for us to live as Christians distinctly, committed to Jesus, unashamed, and yet learn how to engage and live in the culture and society at large? Uh, can I just do a little side thing on a soapbox here? Uh, I've said this before. We need more Christians in the arts of this country. The arts have gone down the toilet in this country, media, film, music, because Christians who one time affected the arts and affected influence culture have decided, I don't want to be a part of that, and so I'm just going to withdraw. You want the culture to change in terms of music? We need more Christians in the music industry. You want the film and arts to reflect beauty and wonder of Jesus and the kingdom? We need more of you to become filmmakers, directors. And no, not Christian films, I'll say this one more time and then I'm done bashing Christian film and Christian music, okay? Look, the reality is non-Christians out there, they don't want to listen to Christian music nor do they listen to Christian music. So how are you going to reach the 98% who listen to larger music industry unless you as a Christian influence that industry with kingdom values and truth and beauty of Jesus? You tracking? So we have a lot of artists in our church. That's why I'm saying this, because you're coming up to me every Sunday going, thank you! Had a ballet dancer two weeks ago. Professional ballet dancer saying, how do I fit? That's the question I've been asking all my life, and she said, you answered that question today. I could reflect the beauty and wonder of the gospel through dance and what God has gifted me with. I said, you go, girl. That's another way of doing it in the name of Jesus. You do it with the beauty and truth. Okay, I'm done with that. We need to ask the question, you guys, some of us. We're at this point going, okay, how far can I stay back from sin and temptation? How far can I stay back and still be committed to Christ? Your challenge is this. Your challenge is no longer as tough, but your challenge is to ask, how deeply can I engage in culture and society? Okay? You're so afraid of crossing that line that you stay too far back and you're irrelevant. You are. People don't even know you. You have no close relationship with those outside the faith. And then for some of us, of course, we're in that place where we've engaged so much that there's nothing distinct about us to the culture at large. And no, I'm not talking about smoking, drinking. Do you get that? Do you get that? When I talk about assimilation to our culture, there are bigger fish to fry. There are larger issues that are at stake. Because we've been obsessed with, can a Christian drink, can a Christian smoke, we've lost our center. That's not what defines Christianity. Gosh, it's just... This is very relevant for us, and the book of Daniel is very relevant for us. We've been saying that the book of Daniel is exilic literature. That means that the book of Daniel describes the life of God's people while they were in exile. 
Nebuchadnezzar, very famous historical figure, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, as he was on this world-conquering agenda, ultimately gets to the nation of Israel, both Israel and Judah, and he, he conquers it and, and, and takes a bunch of exiles back to his country to, as we've been talking about, Babylonize them, to culturally assimilate them, because that was one of the most effective ways to make a vassal nation yours as a king. Instead of destroying it and having to start all over again, what these emperors and kings did at the time was when they conquered a nation, they took the cultural elites, the intellectuals, the professional class, and they assimilated them into their own culture and they sent them back out so that they would influence their own culture. And so they were basically trying to to eradicate the distinctiveness of the Jews as God's people and assimilate into the Babylonian ways, philosophy and culture. And we've seen that Daniel and his friends were a group of people who were taken from Judah into exile in Babylon. And here's why this is relevant. Because all of a sudden, Daniel and the exiles... One time, they enjoyed life where every culture, institution, and society, the government, the arts, the media, were favorable to their biblical view of God. Everything was in line in with, in with cultural, uh, culturally and biblically, biblical values. And all of a sudden, they were taken from that kind of a culture where everybody was friendly to their biblical views into a culture that was pluralistic, many gods, not just one god, and very, very secular. And so they found themselves asking a question, how do I live my life as a distinct believer in an unbelieving world? How do I find myself living my life as a distinct, committed follower of this God, Yahweh, and not assimilate into the Babylonian culture and Babylonian ways? That's the challenge that we're facing. Now, let me just say one other thing. For some of us that grew up in the Bible Belt, There's certain parts of the United States where you go and they're still very favorable to the biblical worldview, if you will. You can survive as a Christian and kind of do the Christian thing. Not in Chicago. This ain't the Bible Belt. You will meet people every day who will say, there are many ways to God, not one way. You will meet people many, every day who say, why do you believe that Jesus is the only way? There are, there, we live in a culture, we live in a city where it's hostile to our faith, where it's indifferent to our faith, where it challenges us every day to think critically about who are we as Christians. Okay, let's go to uh, Daniel chapter 2, okay? We covered chapter 1 last week. Let's go to chapter 2. Michael, would you hand me that water, please? And what I'm going to do today, you guys, is I'm going to go ahead and sort of read all of chapter 2 with you, okay? Uh, And we'll go ahead afterwards and, and look through some insights that God would have for us in terms of what it means for us to live distinct lives as believers in an unbelieving world. Uh, When we come to Daniel chapter 2, when we come to Daniel chapter 2, as we saw in Daniel chapter 1, the young men have been assimilated, if you will, into the Babylonian culture and ways. They've received three years of Babylonian education. Their names have been changed, okay? And and, and they've gone through this program, and yet, as we saw last week, Daniel remains distinct. It's an amazing, amazing story. He remains committed to his God, his Yahweh God, and yet he's an influential person. When we come to Daniel chapter 2, the story picks up. The, the young men have been educated, educated and they're now uh, counselors, advisors, and administrators in Nebuchadnezzar's court, okay? Here we go, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. That group of people that you see right there would be equivalent to sort of the uh, trendsetters, uh, cultural trendsetters, the political gurus of the day. They're political advisors. They served a number of, number of functions. Um, 
And, and, and here, we, here what we see. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I had a dream, this Nebuchadnezzar, that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dreams, and we will interpret it. For those of you that like uh, biblical inside knowledge, one quick interesting fact about Daniel. Did you know that from here, right here in verse 4, where it says, the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, right up until chapter 7, verse 32, the entire passage is written in Aramaic. The book of Daniel is the only bilingual book in the entire Bible. It's written both Hebrew and Aramaic. And then it'll pick back up in Aramaic after verse 32 in chapter 7. You say, what's the significance of that? The significance is that this book wasn't just written for believers, the Jews, God's people. It was written for the unbelieving world at large to declare truth of who God is. Here's another interesting truth. Ready? Remember how we talked about what it means to be bicultural, spiritually bicultural in this world? Part of this message is this is what it means for Christians to live biblically distinct lives in an unbelieving world. This is about living real life in a real world world for a believer. Interesting fact. Verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. To which I go, that's kind of harsh. Not only that, but do you see the unreasonableness behind it? If you haven't yet, verse 6, but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dreams and we will interpret it. Can you? This interchange is so funny, right? The king goes, you tell me what I dreamt and the interpretation or I cut you to pieces. But if you can tell me what I dreamt and interpret it, He'll be wealthy, wealthier than you've ever imagined, to which the, 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 the uh, administrators and, and, the, and the advisors go, well, tell us the dream first, and then we'll interpret it. And the king goes, I just told you what I want. Tell me what I dreamt, and then interpret it, to which they go, tell us the dream first, and then we'll interpret it. It's comical, right? Now, uh, commentators and scholars have debated, like, why, why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? Well, here's going to be a constant theme, right? One is that Nebuchadnezzar forgot his dream. Did you ever wake up from a dream and forget what you dreamt? Anybody? Yeah, it happens, right? I mean, I wake up all the time. I'm breaking out of cold sweats. And Jan, he's like, what happened? What you I'm like, I don't know. I don't remember. A second, so Nebuchadnezzar might have forgotten. And then there's some commentators who think that what he's doing here is what? He's checking to see if they're for real. These are people who've been around his court all of his life, right? He's going, don't feed me some line. Look, anybody, he's saying anybody can sort of give some bogus thing out of their own interpretation. Tell me what I dreamt. And then interpret it, because then I'll know you for real. The comedy continues. Verse 8, after they go, tell us the dream, and then we'll interpret it. King answered, I am certain, he's getting irritated, that you're trying to gain time. Really? Because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Verse 10, the astrologers answered the king, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. Boy, these guys are really smart, you know. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Underline this, verse 12. This, right here, this, what they say, made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. 
So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends because they were also part of the wise men to put them to death. Verse 14. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to, to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Now, guys, if we had time, we could go so much more into this. But look at how Daniel responds in this crisis. Number one, he asks the king for time, and the king grants what Daniel asks. When the people in his court asked him for the same thing, he got even more mad and said, I'm going to execute every one of you. And this will become another kind of constant running theme. Daniel has made his life so distinct as a follower of God. He has lived such a winsome, influential life in that court, in that kingdom, that he has the ear and the heart of the most powerful man on earth. And it is through that that he will come to influence this empire. You know why I say that? Just real quick insight. I wonder how our city and our society would look different if some of us that are working in the real world had that kind of winsome influence to the people we work with. That kind of winsome influence. And we'll see throughout the sermon series why Daniel was so distinct. Verse 16, uh, 17. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. In other words, he says, we gotta pray, we gotta pray concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. God answers the prayer. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven, verse 20, and said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and what dwells with them. I thank And praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to them, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Ariad took Daniel to the king at once. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Verse 26, the king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Verse 27, then Daniel replied, no wise man, no enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has talked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you are lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than all the other living men, but so that you You, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of clay and partly of baked clay, partly of iron and partly of baked clay. 
While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like shaft on threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain, and it filled the whole earth. We're going to stop right there. We're going to stop right there. And this sermon today in chapter 2 is a sermon within a sermon. We'll actually look at chapter, chapter 2 and the rest of the dream and its interpretation next Sunday because there's both a cosmic and individual application. But today, here's what I want to talk to you about. In chapter 2, think of it as four acts in a play, four stages, four phases in a play. Act 1 is the king's response to the dream. Act 2 is the king's response to the wise men. Act 3 is Daniel's response to the crisis. And four, act 4 is the meaning of the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Act 1, the king's response to the dream. Here's an incredibly important insight that we need to remember and embrace as we study the Old Testament. It's really easy for us to read a passage like this and go immediately to the divine reason. God sent the dream. What was the meaning of the dream? And forget the fact that God not only speaks and reveals in spite of our human psyche, our humanity, but that God does through it. Here's what I mean. The dream isn't just for God to reveal future events that would affect the whole world. The dream is an expression of Nebuchadnezzar's own heart condition. What do I mean? It's been my experience as a pastor that some of the most powerful, successful, accomplished people that I know are some of the most anxious, fearful, insecure people that I know. I found that as a pastor that when you see somebody who has a super confident veneer on the outside, the deep down inside is an insecurity and fear that's haunting them. Talked to a guy recently, incredibly successful, anxious as heck, worried as heck all the time, taking medication. And I asked him, why? Everybody would look at you and go, you're the envy of of, of a number of people. You know what he said flat out? He said, I'm terrified that I'm going to fail. I'm terrified that I'm going to fail, that I'm going to lose it all. I'm terrified of the people that are jealous of me. I'm terrified of the people that are competing against me. I'm terrified that what I've worked so hard to build will one day be gone. under the super confident veneer of some of the most successful people is an innate fear of failure. Do you know anybody like that? Are, 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 are you like that? Here's Nebuchadnezzar, the most successful accomplished man in the world. And yet, he has these eruption of these anxious dreams. Why? The more he builds, the more he conquers, the more he's afraid that he's gonna fail. And lose it all. I, I read an interesting quote. Apparently, psychologists discovered that if you're somebody who has dreams of falling a lot, ah, falling a lot, <laughs> that you're struggling from delusions of grandeur. You know, you're one of those people that like to think of yourself. Some of you are going, oh my gosh, I had the dream last night. <laughs> 
Are you tracking, you guys? The king's dream isn't just God revealing future. The king's dream is an eruption of what's going on in his own heart. No powerful person ever likes to feel how weak they really feel underneath. Can I talk to the men in here? Successful accomplishment. I know know my church. I know who comes to this church. Lots of young professionals working downtown. Lots of you making lots of money. Lots of you actually highly educated. Lots of you in some influential positions at work, so on and so forth. I got to ask. I got to ask. I got to ask. I got to ask. What are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? This is not to say that there's not a message for the world from God in the dream. But we're going to have this running theme. The king's dream is an expression of what's going on in his own heart. By the way, unless you, unless you understand that, you're not going to understand why in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar literally has a mental, emotional, psychological breakdown. God doesn't send it. He literally has a mental, emotional, psychological breakdown. Why? It's a volcano that's waiting to erupt, and we see it in chapter 2. Now, how does this apply to us? Listen. If you're sitting there going, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the most powerful man in the world. He has all these things. I can't relate to it. Look, don't just look at the quantity of Nebuchadnezzar's and where he's at. Look at the quality. Here's a simple truth that we'll come back to again and again. When we build our lives on anything else except God, when we build our lives on earthly success, relationships, or conditions, you will experience a great deal of anxiety, much of it unconscious. Why? Because if you're honest with yourself, you know that any joy, any delight, any sense of security you get right now from that job, from that bank account, from that relationship could be gone tomorrow. And if you are not in the grip, icy grip of fear, if you are not anxious, because even though you're building your life on these things, it's because you've lived a very comfortable life. Even in your early 20s, you'll come to grips with the fact that life and the fragile nature of life will come crashing into your life and show you what it is that you're building your life on. You know what else? Nebuchadnezzar shows us that no amount of earthly success will alleviate your insecurity, your fear. The hunger that you have for more, to get to the top. Problem is, when you get to the top, which is here, you're going to realize, I got to go a little higher. And then I got to go a little higher. If your top is, I got to make this much money, it's not going to satisfy. There's going to be satiable hunger for more. If you think, I found the relationship, believe you and me, you're building your life on that, you'll realize there's maybe more. No amount of power, security, finance, no amount of relational security will ever give you, what is it, there's always more. And third, and this is hard, God will oftentimes show us what it is that's really in our hearts, that's sometimes hidden from our consciousness. See, something will come into our life, anybody relate? And we, something will come into our life, and when we see ourselves thinking certain things behind it and reacting to it, and when we see the bitterness, the anger, the frustration, the self-centeredness that, that all of a sudden we see within us, we go, what the heck was that? That's just a warning shot from God, not to punish you, but to awaken you to go, what are you building your life on? We don't respond well when whatever it is that we're building our life on is taken away. Christians, I'm talking to you. Come on. You know what we do? 
I talk to Christians all the time who are like, I'm a Christian, but I'm ready to chuck this whole thing. I can't take the suffering anymore. I can't take the trial. I can't take this. If God loves me, if God really loves me, why would he do this to me? And at the bottom of it all is that they're building their life on some foundation, and that foundation is gone. They're saying, my life is meaningless. And God's going, because you built your entire life on that for meaning, and it's gone. Of course you're going to feel meaningless. I'm angry. Of course you're angry, because that's the thing that you found significance worth That's the thing that you found your life on, and it's gone. Of course you're going to be angry. I don't feel like I've... You see where I'm going? And when God comes with this, it's not to punish you. It's to awaken you to go, what are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? Here's the most powerful man in the universe, and he can't even sleep. How are you sleeping these days? Anybody anxious? Anybody worried? Anybody? What are you building your life on? Act two. Nebuchadnezzar responds to the wise men. Did you notice what makes him mad? Somebody tell me. Somebody tell me. Let's talk. What do you think gets so mad? Come on. Bible scholars, theologians, practical. Somebody bold enough, come on, what makes him so mad? Like ridiculously mad, like, like unreasonably mad. Like what makes him so mad? What's that? He didn't listen? They didn't listen. Okay. All right, Dan. Okay. I'm sorry. All of a sudden, I'm like, I put people on the spot. He gives an answer. Now I got to try and encourage him and say, there is no wrong answer, Dan. You're right. You're right. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> he's right, though. There's part of it. Part of it. He's right. Part of it. Teaching, too, right? Part of it. Yo, yeah, that's, that's kind of there. That's kind of there. Okay. Why is he mad? Why is he angry? Say it. What? He's not in control. Verse 12 says, this made him angry. So you got to go, what's this? Verse 11, verse 10. And you know what makes him mad? Is that his astrologers have the audacity to say to the king, you're the most powerful man on earth, but you're just a man. Sorry. You're just a man. You could order the execution of hundreds of people. You're just a man. And that gets this guy. What sets him off is here is the most powerful man in the universe, most accomplished, successful man in the universe who has his way with everything, who has a, I'll go back to a God complex, if you will, and his little peons have the audacity to go, hey, only a God can reveal that to you. And apparently you're not a God because you can't remember your dream and you can't interpret. And he says, everybody dies. Everybody dies. Nebuchadnezzar's inner conflict is now thrown into relief. He knows that in some ways a dream about, is about his downfall somehow, but yet the most powerful man can't even figure out what his dream means. And when his peons have the audacity to go up to people, go up to him and go, you're not a god, you're just a man. It's as if they spoke the most complete, ultimate truth in his life. 
the thing that he is the most insecure about. By the way, do you know that many of us, the thing that we're most confident about is also the thing that we're most insecure about? And that's why, you guys know what I mean? Isn't that weird how that works? When you see people super, you know, like, so if you wanted to be really mean and truthful, you can go, come on, dude, come on. But we're Christians, we don't do stuff like that, right? <laughs> His inability to discover the meaning of the dream is a further reminder that he's not God. Let me put this quote up here, you ready? Friedrich Nietzsche, the famed philosopher atheist said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? That could be the statement for our, our struggles. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Look, look, I know. We're good Christians, right? We're good Christians. We're good people. So we never go, we never go, I want to be God. <laughs> I want to be God. We never say that, you know? And for some of us, we grew up in backgrounds. If we said that, like we get struck by lightning or something, right? So we really keep it underneath and we repress it, repress it. But you know what? If I had to do a sermon series that would directly hit many of us, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God is the challenge and struggle for us. You know why? God comes to you and me oftentimes and goes, I'm God, you're not. Do you get that? And we go, kind of. <laughs> you don't think you struggle with this? Let me be honest. You don't think you, don't think you struggle? You don't think, you don't think you have a, I want to be God? Come. Why are you, some of you so worried? Why are you so worried? Can we just be honest? Isn't it because you think you know better? Come on. You know, God, didn't you get that memo about my master plan about how I wanted to be married when I'm 28, have two kids? Did you not get that memo? Here I am, I'm 28 and a half, and I'm really worried. (laughs) And deep down inside, look, what we're saying is, I know better. And because I know better, and it's not working out in the way I want it to, I'm worried, I'm anxious. Did you not get that memo about the job career change? God, How, did you not get, why are you so worried? There's worry and there's excessive, excessive worry is you and I going, I know better. Why are you so angry? This is one of the hardest things for me as a pastor. Oh, this is one of the hardest things for me as a pastor. Is that I get good Christians, good solid Christians, people, Jesus loving people who come and say, I am this close to just chucking this whole thing because I'm angry. Why? And you realize that there's been some painful time in their life, something, some suffering, something happened in their life, and they honestly go, I want to know why. I'm not okay with not knowing why. And the struggle is not biblical truth that says, I'm God, you're not. There are things that you will not be able to figure out this side of eternity. And even though we know that up here, in our hearts we go, I'm not okay. If there is a God, how can I stand not being that God? I want to know. That's why when I counsel people that are angry, like angry and bitterness is is growing in their hearts, I I don't remind them of biblical truth because they already know that. They already know. What about this aspect? um, Here's our desire to be God. Galatians 5, we all struggle from this disease called kenodoxis, which is a Greek word for vainglory. That is, all of us inherently see glory for ourselves. Glory in something. Glory in someone. And the glory and importance that only God has, only God is worthy of deserving, we try and take. So we work really hard 
at our beauty. We work really hard at our success. We work really hard to, to better ourselves. We work really hard because ultimately, instead of giving the glory that is due God, instead of giving the name of God, its fame due God, we rob God of it for our sakes. I'm God and you're not is the most difficult message that we can hear, not because we don't understand it, but because it's hard to believe and embrace and live out. But God will send this message to you. Has anybody? Anybody hear from God lately? Hi, Sophie. (laughs) Anybody hear from God lately? Anybody hear from God? And he lovingly, see, God is not, you know, he's not up there going, I'm God and you're not. Come on. You know, it's like, come on. Would a God like that do this? Would a God like that send his one and only son when God says, I'm God, you're not? I have a picture of God absolutely, absolutely just yearning for you to say, I am God, your heavenly father. You're not. God sent you this message recently? The third act takes us into Daniel's response to the crisis. You know what I love about Daniel's response? First of all, we see Daniel's wisdom. We see Daniel's wisdom. In chapter one, you notice, Daniel doesn't make a federal case out of his conscience problem with eating the king's food. Matter of fact, Daniel makes it a point to not publicly and loudly showcase his faith. You know, there isn't Daniel going, I'm a believer. I will not eat this food. Take it away from me. You know, only one person knows about his faith. Only one person knows about his commitments. And that's the chief officer that was over them. But in chapter 2, do you notice what Daniel says in verse 27? It's essentially the same thing that the wise men said to the king. Daniel says the same thing. In other words, the situation calls for boldness, and Daniel doesn't shy away. He steps up to the plate and says, you're not a god. You're just a man. And the king listens. Daniel was wise enough to know the difference between knowing that, listen, do you know that sometimes you know that sometimes we harm God's reputation and the reputation of the church and Christians when you pick a fight? Do you know that? It just drives me up the wall when Christians not know the difference and they're not discerning so that useless things that you don't need to pick a fight about, you don't need to die on that hill, they do. It's just pure stubborn pride. And God says, I need more people who have the discernment of knowing you be humble there, don't pick a fight. You die to yourself. But the flip side of that is Daniel also knew the difference between when to do that, but when time came for him to speak up, he did. He stands up and he says, my God is the only God of the universe, and you're not it, Nebuchadnezzar. He realized he didn't have to do that. He could have just simply told the dream, interpreted it, and said, my service is done, O king, and walked away. Instead, he goes, you're not God. You know it, and I know it. Followers of Jesus, do you know the difference on when to do what? Do you know the difference? Because we jack it up the other way. Do you know that? When situation arises for us to stand up and be bold for Jesus, we're like, hmm. 
And then when a situation arises for Christians to go, I will let my actions speak louder than my words. We needlessly are showy about our faith and we declare our allegiance to Jesus. It's like, come on, do you know the difference? Do you know the difference? Uh, I'm going to talk more about this next week and practically tease this out because I think this is one of the biggest things. You know, uh, do you guys... <laughs> I struggle with this a lot. You guys know, one of the coffee shops that I frequent is Mojo's. You know, Mojo's. And one of the guys that used to work there, owner Mike, it's just kind of a thing that he and I had, you know, but he called me father. (laughs) Father Hong, Father Peter, how's your day going today? Where's your collar? You know, the whole whole thing, right? (laughs) Uh, It's okay if it's just him and me. You know what I mean? Like, I walk, and Mike's like, hey, Father Hong. And I'm like, hey, Mike, what's up, coffee? But then when there's like 30 people in the coffee shop, you know, and I walk in like this, right, and there's people lying in the coffee line, and Mike goes, hey, Father Hong, how's your day today? How's your parish is going on? And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> and you get that stare, you get that look, and people are going, are you really, like, for, for, like, is he really a In little things even like that, it's hard to go, when do I go, yeah, actually I am. When do I go, I'm a follower of Jesus. I pastor people. Would you like to come check out our church? Other times when I go, short answers. Are you a pastor? Yes. What do you do, pastor? I just (laughs) asked you that. I've done that, I've done that. You know, I've done, don't leave me alone. I just want my coffee. Get the heck out of here. (sighs) Am I alone? Anybody relate? Come on. Jeez. The other thing about Daniel's response that's so just striking, beautiful, is his prayer life. It's his prayer life. Did you notice? The first thing that Daniel does as he goes back to his friends is that they turn to prayer, group prayer. And this isn't going to be the first time or the last time that we see Daniel in prayer. Matter of fact, one of the very lessons, and some of you guys growing up in Sunday school, you know one of the very lessons that we need to learn in Daniel is the importance and centrality of prayer for living faithful lives in a pagan environment. Let me say this once, and I'm not going to repeat it again. If you do not have a centered prayer life, you have no shot of living a life of witness in this world. You'll either assimilate or you'll separate. No shot. If you are not centered in prayer and God is at work in your heart and you're drawing source of strength from him, you have no shot. You will either assimilate or you will withdraw and separate. Simple as that. It's really that simple. The thing that allowed Daniel to live faithful life in this pagan environment was he was deeply a man of prayer. Chapter 6, verse 10, we're going to see Daniel pray three times a day. In Daniel 9, we'll see a long version of one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. Daniel is a man of prayer. Now, Why is it significant for entering or handling crisis? Here's our approach. Here's our approach. Here's our approach when crisis comes. It's when all else fails, go pray. I've tried everything else. I've tried everything else. I'm going to go pray. Daniel's approach is prayer life before all else fails. When good times, bad times. When God answers, when God doesn't. When things are going well, things are not. When I want to, when I don't want to, I pray. And you know why that's important? Because when crisis hits, unless you have a forged character, and deep skills of resting in God's assurance and presence, you will not be able to make it through crisis. Character 
is not made in crisis. Character is not formed in crisis. People go, oh, you know, crisis will shape you. Hard times, no. Character isn't shaped or molded or formed by crisis. Crisis will reveal your character. It'll reveal what you're made of. Crisis will reveal what's deep in your heart. Crisis doesn't shape us. Crisis only revealed to us what our character really is. And that character is formed and shaped in prayer, constant prayer. The other thing that I love about this is this, oh, when God answers a prayer, you know, here's just a little side, right? If it was up to me, if it was me, if I was Daniel, God answers my prayer, right? And I know what the dream is, interpretation. And I also know that hundreds of wise men and astrologers' lives are hanging in the balance. I'm going, I'm going to have fun with that. You know what I mean? I know what the dream is. Tell him. I know what the interpretation is. Tell the king. Matter of fact, you scholars and commentators have debated about this and talked about it. Like, why didn't Daniel, why didn't Daniel wait? You know, if he was a godly man, wouldn't he have wanted to wipe all of them out? Which I go, oh, you know. Or if he was, we don't know why he did what he did. But what we do know is this. When God answered his prayer, He doesn't flit off to the next thing when God answers his prayer. He doesn't go, thank you very much. I'm off. When God answers his prayer, he's not on to the next thing. When God answers his prayer, first thing that Daniel does is he sits and he says, thank you, God. He worships God. He praises God. He he doesn't just flit. You know what we do? God answers prayer. Something comes through. Job, answer, but you know what we do? We're on to the next thing. And God's going, you're welcome. You know what Jenny and I are doing with our son? When we give Parker something, I go, Parker, come here. Look at him. I go, what do you say? He says, thank you. I That's right, thank you. you know? <laughs> and then my, my wife, of course, is more like, what do you say, Parker? Thank you. And she gives him a hug. Do you know why we're teaching him that? Besides the fact that we don't want him to be rude and obnoxious. Paul says in the book of Romans, Paul says in the book of Romans, Paul says in the book of Romans that the characteristic attributes of an idolater is failure to acknowledge God but also failure to thank God. You know why? You know what idolatry does? It makes you forget that you are weak, you are fragile, you are dependent completely on God and God alone. Thanksgiving is the only cure. Thanksgiving is the only cure that brings us to that place where we're like, God, thank you. And by saying this, I am acknowledging I'm weak. I'm dependent. I am nothing without your grace and your mercy. And when crisis hits our lives, that you, when crisis hits our lives, you're going to need a clear picture of who God is because that is the only thing that will allow you to have faith in this God that will then give you hope in this God, which will enable you to have heart in this God, which will give you courage to be able to go through it. The only way they're going to be able to see a clear picture of who God is is if you have seasoned, disciplined, regular times of thanking God. When's the last time you thanked God? When's the last time you acknowledged God for every single little perfect gift that is from above? When? When? This isn't about following some... This is about... It's about us. It's about us going, God, if I don't do this, I'm going to stray. Let's finish. The meaning of the dream. The meaning of the dream. 
next week. We'll look at what theologians have debated for centuries about the meaning of the dream. But I'm not that smart, so I like to be more simple, you know. And I like commentators that give simple insights, and they say, the dream, people have thought about, you know, the gold represents one kingdom, and the silver represents another kingdom, and and all this. And so when we figure out what the kingdoms are and who the empires were, then we can figure out when Jesus is coming back so we can be ready. (laughs) Which I'm going, I'm not that smart. I'm just looking at the dream as face value. Why is he anxious? Why is he so worried? Why is he so concerned? Do you know what the dazzling figure the statue is representative of? It's Nebuchadnezzar. He's come to the big city to erect a dazzling figure of him that the whole world might see and go, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. And yet in his dreams, his fears are being exposed that this powerful, mighty man who rules the world, his feet is made of clay. He's got feet of clay, just like anybody else. Why have you come to this city? Why are you here? Successful, accomplished, driven, educated. Why are you in Chicago? And what dazzling figure are you creating for yourself? Whose kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom are you building? Yours or God's? If you build your entire life on popularity, you're going to be scarred by the polls. If you build your entire life on financial success and money, you will be scarred by the market. If you build your entire life on acceptance, you will be scarred by rejection. If you build your entire life on identity, your foundation on a relationship, you'll be scarred by him or her. If you build your entire life on the fact that I'm a good person, your sinfulness will wreck you. What dazzling figure are you creating for yourself? Why are you here? The message of Daniel speaks through through King Nebuchadnezzar and says, if you build your life on anything else but the sure foundation that is Christ, you will never feel like you have a self. Life will teach you and show you. What are you building your life on? And you know what the Bible says? David, you can come up. We're wrapping up here. Look at this powerful truth that we'll sort of pick up next week. Look at this powerful truth from the book of 1 Peter, as I think the Apostle Peter was sort of riffing on the book of Daniel, you know, as he thought about the scripture passage as a good Jew, he surely knew. Verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to what it says. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You know what the Bible says over and over again? And this isn't profound truth. Just life. The Bible says all of us are building on something. All of us are building our life on something. There is a foundation upon which we're built. And God says either there's my way or there's your way. 
And God says, do it my way and choose the cornerstone, the foundation that is in your life, that which is Christ. You know what a cornerstone was? Cornerstone was the stone that sort of was the foundation for the entire building in such a way that when the cornerstone shook, everything on that building shook. Martin Luther once said very profoundly, the way that you know what your cornerstone is, the way that you know what your true foundation is, when all hell breaks loose, when all things go awry, when crisis hits, what is the thing that you run to to say, at least I have that? What is the thing that you run to to say, at least I'm a good parent, at least I'm a good mother, at least I'm a good Christian, at least I'm successful, at least I'm wealthy, at least, what is the thing that, and he says, that is your true cornerstone, Christian or not, regardless of what you say. The Apostle Peter, speaking through the Holy Spirit, says, make Jesus your true cornerstone and find him precious. You know what that means? Cornerstone, not just foundation, but the other stones had to line up with the cornerstone in such a way that when the cornerstone was on, the other stones were on. When the cornerstone was off, the other stones were off. When the cornerstone was shaking, all the other other stones were shaking. In other words, there was an inseparable identification between the cornerstone and the rest of the stones. Here's what it means to be a Christian. That when you put your faith in God through Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, you have an inseparable identification with him. That means that Jesus Christ, who died the death that we should have died and lived the life that we should have lived, when we, when we submit and yield to his lordship and we say, my foundation is weak, my foundation is not strong enough, my foundation has got to go. Jesus, I want you to be my foundation. And we believe in him. An inseparable identification that is real happens in such a way that because Jesus is beautiful, we become beautiful to the Father. Because Jesus is accepted, we become acceptable to the Father. Becoming a Christian isn't about intellectual adherence to a set of beliefs. Becoming a Christian is us saying, God, I will no longer make this the foundation of my life. You are my foundation. You are my anchor. You are my hope. You are my trust. And everything else in life becomes expendable. And you say, how does, how does that happen, Peter? This is the amazing thing of the gospel. It doesn't happen because you try hard. It doesn't happen because you obey a bunch of rules. It doesn't happen because you come to church. The Bible says the only way that you're going to be that committed, you're going to make Jesus your cornerstone, is if you find him precious, if you make him the most unexpendable thing in your life. And how does that happen? The Bible says that Jesus came and he was rejected, rejected by men, rejected by his family, rejected even by the Heavenly Father as the sins of the world lay on his shoulders and God had to turn away. Jesus received rejection from the ones even that he loved, which tore him up. And you ask the question of why. Why was Jesus rejected by men? Why did Jesus experience the humiliation? Why did Jesus obey even to the point of going to the cross? The answer is simple. The answer is because you were precious to him. It's because you were precious to him. So precious that even his life was expendable. Even his life. And until you are able to see Jesus Christ as that precious, you will not make him your cornerstone. You will not make him your true foundation. I've been praying all week for this, and it's always the work of God. But I believe that in this room today, there are those of you, you're not a Christian, you don't even consider yourself spiritual or religious, but today as you're sitting here in the hearing of all these people, today you're at the point of saying, I cannot make this my foundation. I can't. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity. 
Here's what we do in our church. We don't say, everybody close your eyes, raise your hands. We used to do that or stand up. Because here's the thing. Making this commitment, the Bible says, it's not something that you do with your willpower. You do privately with God. Making this commitment is to say, invite people along and say, I need some of you. Can, can you, can you, can you? Come, come, do this with me. Help me. And so here's, oh, we're going to do this. If you're somebody that's here and you're saying, you know what? I don't even know all the ins and outs of what it means to be a Christian stuff, but I don't want this to be my foundation. I want God, Jesus. Will you come up and join me up here? And before you come up, I guarantee you, there will be people around you. There will be people here, and I've people will come up with you. You're not going to do this alone. It's not going to be just you and me. When you come up here, there will be people who will say, I commit to going on this journey with you, people in our church who love you, care for you. Is there anybody? Is there anybody? Is there anybody here this morning that wants to do that? Yes, in the sight of all these people. No pressure. Come on up, brother. Come on up. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? <laughs> Who's going to join these folks up here? Will you come up? Will you come up? Come on up. Come on up. God, um, thank, thank you. You're a gracious God. You're a loving God. And God, I just pray right now. I just pray right now that we be a church family. that would walk along with these folks, God, that we would journey with them. God, that we would not... Uh, that we would not give up, that we would not abandon, but in this difficult journey, God, as you are patient with us, that we would be patient and walk through the hard questions, through the difficult questions. Through, through the times of doubt, massive, big doubt, times of, I don't want to do this anymore, times of, God, I'm ready to chuck the whole thing, times of, I don't even know if this is for real, times like that, that you would be at work, that you would be at work. I pray for your precious children, and by the power of your spirit and your might, you make yourself known 
And God, I pray also for my brothers and sisters that have surrounded these brothers and sisters. God, I pray that you, uh, you didn't call them up here, Father, just for this Sunday. Father, you called them whether to partner with them in prayer, partner with them, Father, by coffee here and there, partner with them through meals, partner through late night phone conversations, partner them through anything and everything, God, that you would call them to. That they would journey with you. I lift them up unto you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus. In Jesus' name. For those of you that came up, I'm talking about both groups. If you guys, after the service, will be willing to meet up here in the front area, exchange information, exchange information and make sure that there will be follow up and our staff will lead that. Thank you. Everybody else, can we pray as we take communion? Father, we offer up ourselves to you. And this morning as we take, this morning as we take communion, this morning as we break bread, and as we drink the wine, Father, remind us of this powerful truth that your body was broken and your blood was shed for us and for the restoration of this broken world. Remind us today, God, that as we partake of this, that there is something real and powerfully alive, that you would nourish us, that you would strengthen us, God, that you would lift us up, God. Allow us to see you for who you are. In your gracious, loving, faithful kindness, as you've reached out to your lost and broken creation. And as we worship you and declare your worth, In the midst of your people, God, will you be praised? For some of us that haven't done so in ages, God, may this be a time in which we can say with our hearts and with our souls, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given it, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. And this is the cup that symbolizes the blood that was shed for us. Symbol of the new covenant that allows us to come in to a relationship with God via faith, not by works, so that no man or woman may boast. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of him. The way we take communion in our church is you'll take a piece of bread, you'll dip it in the cup. You don't need to wait for the rest of us. Whenever you're ready, you can take the elements. Whenever you're ready, there will be four stations today on each of the corners. Please come forward, worship your God, sing his praise. Servers, will you please come forward? Thank you, guys. Thank you. You guys go and go back and seat. For those of you that are serving communion, come on up. There you go. Come on up. Sandra and Carl, will you guys go way to then by the cross? The Lord invites us, please come forward when you're ready.